Welcome to Twill, we can help lower the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. I'm recording this episode on November 27, 2018. I've got three wonderful guests. And they're going to go around the room and introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Michael Frumkin. I'm a professor of law at the University of Miami. I've been doing tech law since the mid-90s, robots for almost 10 years. And for the last couple of years, I've been thinking a lot about AI and health. Hi there. My name is Abby Gluck. I'm a professor of law at Yale Law School, where I'm also the faculty director of our Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy. Hi, I'm Nicholson Price. I'm an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan, where I spend a lot of time thinking about about uh, biomedical innovation, how the law shapes that process. For the last few years, I've been focused on big data and artificial intelligence in health. And I, of course, am Nick Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University McKinney uh, in Indianapolis. Abby, this is sort of an after-show party, and you and your colleagues at Yale and the Solomon Center threw the party earlier this month. So, Uh, It would be a good place to start, I think, if you could just tell us a little bit about that day and what you hope to learn and and some of the things that you and uh, students and grad students took away from it. We had a fantastic roundtable that was co-hosted by my center and uh, my colleague Jack Balkin Center on called the Information Society Project. Michael, you and Nicholson were, of course, there. And the goal of the day was to try to drill down a little bit on some of the legal and ethical implications of the technological advances in the field. We talked about FDA regulation of um, healthcare apps and other new medical devices. We talked about telemedicine. We talked about artificial intelligence and big data. And we thought it'd be really fun to drill down even further here in this podcast on some of the more challenging questions that were posed in the artificial intelligence and big data panels. Drilling down into specific issues around big data, AI, robotics, and the practice of medicine. Obviously, uh, this hits both some of the older tech that we're familiar with from electronic health records, clinical decision support, and so on, and the newer stuff that uh, you've all alluded to in your introductions. Traditionally, healthcare data has been protected by non-disclosure laws, such as the HIPAA privacy rule, uh, but a rule that is subject to data subject consent. As we move into higher and higher technologically mediated healthcare, even the technology may be taking over the healthcare. I wonder, Michael, could we start with you and and what's your take on that traditional model of non-disclosure plus consent as we move into this new world? Well, I think there are two different pieces implicated by your question, perhaps the one you intended and one maybe you didn't. Um, To start with the second one, big data is going to become a barrier to entry for AI, right? AI is very hungry for data. So if we want to have effective AI, it just needs more and more and more data. And as a general matter, although there are some exceptions, the more the merrier. So who owns the data? becomes a way to control who gets to do smart, effective AI. And that's going to put a lot of pressure on the system. Now, um, your question really touched on the privacy side, um, although I don't think HIPAA is the key actor here. Um, one of the big actors is going to be the federal regulations that regulate the use of patient data in any federally funded research, because those regulations sweep very far. They actually commonly, like in my university, for example, any research done here is subject to what's called the common rule, because the entity, the university, gets federal money. So everything we do is covered. And that's pretty much the pattern nationally. So a huge amount of biomedical research is covered by federal regulations other than HIPAA, which affect the use of patient data collected for research purposes. And the common rule is about to have its a giant makeover starting in January. Um, it's, it's been in the pipeline for a very long time. 
The rules have been published for a while, but they're going to take effect soon. And they're going to change in quite radical ways how consent works. Um, you know, consent, as, as, as you and your listeners probably know, is the fundamental building block of how we do privacy law in the U.S. The idea is you give people notice, you let them choose what's going to happen with their data. Um, now, commonly, that's a boilerplate contract in private things where you just sign away your life. Um, but in the public realm, it's a little bit better. And in the medical realm, it's a lot better because we require informed consent. Well, under the common rule, that's going to change a bit. And you're going to be able to give a blanket consent that's going to let people use your data in ways you only knew about in general terms and share them with entities that, again, you only knew about in general terms. And that's driven in part by the need to, for public health purposes to have access to large amounts of data and also driven by the fear that the people who consent are necessarily representative of the whole population. So the data that we might be working with if we relied on consent wouldn't be representative of everybody. Now, you might say, well, that's just good for the public. But the problem is that the whole idea behind big data is to find unexpected correlations. So at the time we're asking people for consent, we're not able to tell them in a meaningful way how their data will be used because we don't know, right? The AI is going to do things we hope that we can't foresee. So all of a sudden, informed consent is a lot less informed than it's ever been before. And the new rules to oversimplify enormously are mostly okay with that if you do it right. And that's a big change. And it's one that I actually am a little worried about, not just because of the public health aspect, which is probably going to be okay as long as institutional review boards, the dreaded IRBs, do their jobs. But because of the knock-on effects this is going to have in other uses of big data, where now the gold standard, the health sector, is going to be somewhat tarnished. So, Michael, do you think that uh, the informed consent doctrine is now going to be completely meaningless? Is that what we should take from your response? Absolutely not. Um, it's still going to matter enormously in private medicine, right? I mean, if you're not part of a research study, none of these new rules apply to you. So there'll be no change there at all. Right? You go in for surgery, you're not part of a study, nothing changes. Um, on the other hand, um, in the long run, things might change because we're just going to see a lowering of the ceiling, right? So people's attitudes about sort of what's ethically required to um, get what kind of consent's ethically required becomes less demanding. I mean, look, informed consent was never perfect, right? There's all kinds of work that suggests that there are gaps. People don't always understand what they're signing, but at least it represented a genuine good faith attempt to have somebody who understood what's going to happen, try to explain it to the person whom it's going to happen to. And that's what's going to go away in research. And I'm afraid of a trickle-down effect in the long run. But in the short run, nothing changes outside of research. And in fact, even within research in the very short run, nothing changes because universities and research institutions will have to rewrite their consent policies. And I'm detecting a certain fear of nobody wants to be first because there isn't pattern language in the regulation. There isn't a safe harbor. So there's some risk for whoever goes first that they might get it wrong and get sued. So they're being very cautious. Isn't there some um, concern about using uh, artificial intelligence and big data in the uh, at the bedside and having that data bleed over onto the research side? Uh, and wouldn't these issues get more complicated as we start to pool data from the clinic into the research pool? So if you take the revised common rules seriously, one of the things you have to do, and it's one of the things that has intelligent general counsels worried, is do a very good job of tagging where your data came from and what consent came with it. Because now you're going to have all kinds of different levels of consent, right? Some people may not give the, the general consent. Um, some people may not have signed anything. So you're going to have a real metadata management issue. And our current electronic systems are not necessarily, in fact, almost never well engineered to deal with that. So the bleed happens if you have a badly engineered system, which, of course, is quite predictable. Can I ask a, a, a question about that, which is why would we think that the right answer is still to keep these systems very segregated, right? One response to this version of, oh, we have different systems and the bleed is going to be challenging is... 
if care and research are more integrated because we keep collecting data and we use want to use them to improve care, if data that are about health are harder to separate from data that are generated in the healthcare system, uh, does it still make sense to say these are really discrete categories that operate under different, distinctly different legal regimes as opposed to we should be thinking about this more holistically? I'll add another one into that, Nicholson, which is the, uh, the sort of medically inflected data that we've been talking about for a while now, which is data picked up from e-commerce, exhaust transactions, loyalty cards in supermarkets, and so on, that we know that um, the big data companies are essentially building healthcare proxies outside of the HIPAA-protected zone. Um, so uh, they they don't have to comply with HIPAA. They have their own sort of medical records on each of us that they can then sell. So I think there's a, a sense that all of these data uh, from these different uh, domains or subdomains uh, are beginning to be threatened in the same way. And I just wonder whether uh, there's any point in talking about notice and consent anymore. Uh, And in fact, we should just realize that we've moved on from that to looking at uh, far different data protection uh, models. So here it is. I couldn't have paid you guys to make my point better. It's happening already, right? The consequence of the change in the common rules, people are saying, hey, let's get rid of more privacy. Let's get rid of more consent. That's exactly what I was worried about. And you're, you're demonstrating it. Now, I do want to point out in, in um, connection with Nicholas's comment that there are two very potentially different scenarios with the merging of the shopping data and the health data. One is where the data in private hands that is non-health data gets acquired by some means by people subject to the health privacy rules and is merged into their database. That's not a big problem, right? If the data was acquired in a legitimate way and you merge it with the health data and it doesn't come out again, that's okay. The problem is when the health data comes out and gets into the hands of the shopping people, for which there wasn't a consent given or nobody ever imagined when they said they were signing, you know, for private researchers and health uh, policy that that was going to end up being in the hands of Safeway or Giant Foods or whatever. Uh, that's a completely different problem and a much worse one. You know, um, we've just talked about how in, how big data and artificial intelligence and medicine might change the way we think about the doctrine of informed consent. But how about the practice of medicine in general? Nicholson, do you think you could talk to us a little bit? about how you think the use of artificial intelligence is going to change the way doctors practice medicine and the way patients have their medical experience. I think one of the interesting things is that when we think about medical AI, we tend to think about how it can push boundaries and let us realize things we didn't know before. That's, uh, in, in fact, earlier in this conversation, Michael mentioned that the whole idea behind big data is to find unexpected correlations. And that's certainly something that big data and medical AI can do, which is to push the frontiers of medical knowledge and medical practice and let us do things that we couldn't do before because we didn't know about them. And now we still might not know what's going on, but we can use patterns that the AI has found and do cool things. Uh, But there are a bunch of other things that AI can do that I think are likely to have maybe as important effects in the health system. uh, And I'd like to highlight three more. Uh, The first I think of as uh, automating drudgery, which is to say there are lots of tasks that doctors really hate and they really gum up the medical system. Pulling information out of patient records, filling in patient records, patient paperwork in general, uh, and in general, all the tasks that are dealing with computers and administrative tasks. Lots of things in that area uh, can be really facilitated by by AI, whether through natural language processing or pulling out the relevant information in records or whatever it is so that doctors can spend more time focused on patients and less time dealing with paperwork. 
The second key thing, I think, is allocating resources, which is to say AI can help us figure out when a certain patient needs a scarce resource like a hospital bed more than another patient and can help us make the the system overall work more efficiently. This obviously is going to raise lots of ethical questions, but could be quite transformative. And there's some evidence that hospitals and healthcare systems are already using AI for this sort of resource allocation task. The last thing I'd mention is that AI has the potential to democratize expertise which is to say AI can not only improve what we're able to do, but can make what only some people are now able to do accessible to lots more people. A great example of this is a product called IDXDR, which diagnoses diabetic retinopathy, which is a worsening of the uh, retina for patients that have diabetes. Right now, really only ophthalmologists are able to take a picture of the retina and evaluate it for this. But a company has developed an AI product that can do this diagnosis, taking a task that previously only ophthalmologists could do and make it accessible to any general practitioner with the right camera and access to this AI system. This brings the potential to get uh, medical expertise to millions, if not billions of patients who don't currently have access to the best experts in the business. We talk a lot about substitution in the context of AI, ML, and increasingly robotics. And I think that has both sort of factual and normative uh, aspects to it. The factual, what kind of substitutions do you think are most likely in, I don't know, pick it, um, the next decade of patient care? And then there's the normative aspect, which is what kind of tasks do we feel most comfortable or uncomfortable delegating to AI or robots? So uh, how about going around the table first with the factual? What kind of substitutions seem uh, to have the the closest horizon? So I'm actually going to challenge the question, at least in the first instance, which is to say we talk a lot about substitution and whose jobs are going to be replaced. But I think we should spend more time talking about where AI is going to step into a gap where nobody currently has that job, where it's not an issue of, you know, are you putting a dermatologist out of a job, but instead Mm -hmm. an issue Mm -hmm. of there was never a dermatologist there in the first place. And so you're letting people have access to skincare that didn't previously have any sort of access. Now, all of that said, I also think uh, it's the case that there are some areas where we're likely to see substantial shifts in practices. Uh, I imagine radiologists uh, are a a specialty where lots of people have said the job of radiologists is going to substantially change. Some are likely to unlikely to be doing uh, the same thing that they're doing now, and uh, others may well just be mostly replaced. So I agree with, I think, everything Nicholson just said. I just want to give a slightly different emphasis on a couple pieces. Um, I want to offer you two distinctions. The first is between things that involve patient contact and things which are sort of more back office. Right? The AI is going to, at least in the short, medium term, have a lot more effect in the back office things. Right? That radiologists don't see patients. They see films. And AI is great at pattern recognition, pattern recognition. So that's why um, radiologists' jobs are going to either change or disappear. Um, on the other hand, the patient contact aspect of the thing, there, there's, a, there's a human element there. There's an ethical element there. Um, there's a patient comfort issue there. So I think your, your AI doctor that uh, is the only, and you never see a human is still very, very far off. 
Um, the other distinction I want to offer is between first world and developing world. So in the first world, you're going to see people wanting to have medical apps to do self-diagnosis, um, and that'll help them decide whether to go to the doctor or what doctor to go to. In poorer countries where they don't have access to medicine, either because of transport or financial issues, or there's just there's no doctor there at all, um, you, it could be revolutionary, right? You're going to have things which either go on the phone or on relatively cheap devices that link with phones in somewhere, where it'll collect symptomatic information, send it off someplace, and then something will come back with at least some idea about you know, either treatment or you know just how serious this is, and you have to trek over to the hospital however far away that is. And that could potentially be huge. Um, you know, at the conference, we saw uh, two fascinating demonstrations of that, uh, of that very process from two doctors uh, that uh, spoke to us on the evening before the major conference. One of those was a portable ultrasound machine that could attach to your phone. Uh, we saw somebody perform an ultrasound on his own carotid artery um, at the dinner table. Uh, and the democratizing effect of that really could be quite spectacular. Uh, in addition, just as Michael just said, in developing countries, general practitioners could use that kind of ultrasound technology uh, in, to diagnose things that previously perhaps only specialists could do. I think the other thing uh, that we saw at that demonstration was we saw one Yale surgeon demonstrated to us how he uses robotics in surgery. And one of the implications of that, um, the rise in that technology for purposes of substitution, is he confessed to us that many doctors who are newly trained on these, particularly younger doctors, they're not actually as adept at operating directly on the body. When they do robotic surgery, uh, this was a cardiovascular surgeon, they're not even in the room uh, with the body. They're far away at the computer. And we asked the question, what happens if there's an emergency and you have to run over and sort of open up the body? And he said, you know, it's a challenge that going forward is going to be interesting to figure out um, whether doctors are going to be trained on both kinds of technologies or whether there's going to be some doctors that really don't know how to operate in the old-fashioned way and what might be the implications of that. I guess, Nicholson, I, I, I would um, I would actually agree with your, your disagreement with my question with sort of a, a couple of notes. I tend to think not so much about things that aren't happening at all, but rather things that aren't being done very well or are being done in inconvenient places or with inconvenient technology. So an example I think of the first is I think there is a general uh, agreement that we are way behind the curve in diagnostics in this country, uh, that we actually have a diagnostic medical error problem and that AI might be a really good tool to, to push hard into that area. As to my second category, sort of the inconvenience type of thing, that tells us quite a lot about why people are using apps, why they're using smart watches, and so on. Yeah, I, I think we can imagine kind of a, a spectrum on how AI is going to interact with practitioners. There are some instances where literally there's there's nobody available to give a certain type of care now, and the AI could step into that gap and replace precisely nothing. There are also instances where AI can just make things more convenient. So for the first example, you know, we might say um, a, a dermatology app that's based on your phone in rural India, where look, they're not going to see a dermatologist and 
and the app is going to replace care that just doesn't currently exist. We could also imagine the more convenient side of this thing. So the, the diabetic retinopathy product that I mentioned earlier, it turns out there's really low uh, uh, follow through on the fact that you're supposed to see an ophthalmologist every year. And part of that's because it's hard to see an ophthalmologist every year. There just aren't that many of them. And so making this part of an annual visit to a general practitioner could take the convenience out of it. Taking one more step further, we can imagine something that lots of people do, but they do it poorly diagnostics, I think, fits into this. If we can make every doctor as good as the best diagnosticians by giving them access to AI that says, look, here's the pattern. I'm good at recognizing patterns. This is what this patient has. That'd be a huge step forward in healthcare. And then at the very top, we can imagine AI that's that's truly augmenting the abilities of people that are already at the top of the field and letting diagnosticians or surgeons or oncologists or whoever uh, do things that they currently just, that nobody can do. What do you feel about the the more normative question then? Where do we have a comfort level with the introduction of more technology into our care, even substitution of professionals that we're used to? Are there any specific concerns or lines that you'd like to draw? I'm personally really comfortable with it, but I don't think I'm the one that matters. I think the question is, what are patients in general going to be comfortable with? And in particular, patients in different groups, if the answer is that AI becomes another tool in the already big toolbox of things that treat people getting excellent medical care already, I think that's not a great outcome. Uh, If we can say that this is broader, I'm less concerned about saying, oh, here's a particular type of specialty that we need to be really careful of because they have a powerful lobby or whatever. All of that said, uh, I think in, in calling back to Michael's earlier point, those parts of medicine that are really focused on human-human inter- interactions are the places where I'm leeriest about replacing humans with AI. So psychiatric chatbots uh, strike me as something that I'm nervous about. One thing that does make me nervous is the data quality issue, right? Geigo is just garbage in, garbage out, is as true as ever. And there's at least some research that suggests that a lot of our current medical data is bias in the direction of data drawn from white men. So I, if we start pushing this stuff out on a big scale, if the data isn't actually representative of the population it's going to be used on, it may not treat them as well as they deserve. And that is a worry. It's a solvable worry. But I think it's something we need to be very sensitive of. I mean, just the gross, you know, what is the population question? And then more subtle data quality errors that can seep in um, can cause all sorts of very strange results unless we're really eagle-eyed about it. And we haven't worked out scientific ways. It's still really a matter of taste and judgment sometimes to look out for these unexpected problems. So that's one family of issue. The other note I want to point out goes back to the, we're talking about the robotic surgeons and the de-skilling problem, right? As an AI comes to dominate any particular subject, call it radiology, um, there is going to be a lot fewer people who want to join that profession. In fact, there's just a Canadian study in press right now that shows that Canadian med students are abandoning radiology in droves for fear they're going to be displaced by AIs. Um, so then all of a sudden you have a lot fewer people going into the specialty. Now, we don't worry a lot about the fact that there are a lot fewer horse and buggy drivers than there used to be. We call that progress. Um, The reason we might not feel quite as sanguine about it in the medical area is that currently the way we train AIs is by giving them data which has been annotated by humans so they can tell, for example, what's a tumor what isn't. And when you get new sensor equipment, you need to create a new set of training data. It doesn't easily map from the old one at all. 
um, especially if it's an invasive or dangerous procedure like x-rays. Um, if, it's not, if it's not dangerous, you could do two procedures and compare the two and teach the AI that way. Um, but for things like radiology, that doesn't work. So we're still going to need a core of expert radiologists to train the next generation of AIs. And we need to know that we have a path that keeps enough of those people around that we can do that or we're going to paint ourselves into a nasty corner. Um, Nicholson, you've written a lot about this problem of the potential inherent biases uh, in AI. Um, can you talk about that a little more and talk about what you think the regulatory or non-regulatory approaches would be to actually trying to address some of those inherent biases? I think there are at least two big sources of potential bias, at least in the way we're developing AI now. One of them is what Michael just mentioned, which is the problem, the, the fact that the data on which AR, AI are trained now are based on really non-representative populations. Lots and lots of medical big data come from uh, white men, from white folks in general, uh, and these may not be representative in terms of kind of what problems we actually see, what diagnoses uh, make sense, what the right outcome is. Is, uh, lots of problems with representativeness of populations. The other form of potential bias that I find challenging and a little bit subtler is based on the resources of where data come from and where AI is trained. Uh, what might be the right option for somebody at a really fancy uh, academic hospital like Mass General or the University of Michigan or Memorial Sloan Kettering might not be the right treatment choice for somebody in a setting that just doesn't have those resources because the risk benefit analysis changes. Uh, and as it stands right now, most of our big health data and most of our AI training is going on in that particular subset of places, those particularly fancy high resource hospitals. And so I'm concerned that what we might be doing is training AI to give a very specific type of care to a very specific population. Uh, and when we try to generalize to populations more broadly and to care contexts more broadly, we may run into real quality problems. Let's turn the conversation a little bit to sort of expected or anticipated sort of regulatory models. And obviously, we, we have a, a broad swathe of, of potential regulation here. We've This conversation has moved from data protection uh, to error to quality to access. Do you see a coherent model of regulation coming about? Or are we going to sort of wait for an event? The autonomous vehicle uh, industry is somewhat instructive, though it's by no means a perfect analogy. I mean, we have been putting more and more technology, information technology into our gasoline-powered horses and horse and buggies for a couple of decades. But people didn't really stop and look at what was going on until it became clear that it was no longer a vehicle, it was a computer with wheels. And the thing that got people's attention was its autonomous nature, or its semi-autonomous nature. A different way of looking at that same possibly strained analogy is, did we really think deeply about the regulation of autonomous vehicles until there were the first deadly crashes? And so I guess my question is, is there going to be a structured approach to introducing regulation, or are we going to kind of wait for an event, even a a, a product launch that suddenly opens people's eyes to this or to some uh, more tragic event? Well, I guess it depends who you talk, mean by we, because certainly in the academic community, we've been worrying about autonomous vehicles and crashes for almost 10 years, at least. I know that the conference I organized, We Robot, we had papers 
papers about that at the very first conference. So it's true the public didn't get excited about it, but uh, academics and experts were thinking about it from the start. Uh, in the health area, I guess I would say that although there are a few things which are very specifically health-oriented in AI and may require very special treatment, generally speaking, most of the issues that arise with health AI are AI issues more than their health issues and belong in some more holistic scheme of regulation that deals with AI in general. So I guess my hope is that, you know, we don't have some incident which makes us make a whole lot of special rules, too many special rules for health, where actually we only need a few, maybe in the area of tort. I mean, let me give you a specific example. Suppose that tomorrow morning, your doctor decides to buy a shiny new AI to advise her on your treatment. That's a decision support system. We have rules for that already. We don't need new rules, right? The issues only get exciting when the doctor steps back and lets the AI make the decisions rather than relying on it as an advisor. And we're, we're not there yet. We will, we may get there at, at some point reasonably soon in diagnosis. It'll be a lot longer before they're on treatment, I think. Well, we are there to an extent, Michael, because there are questions about the choice architecture, right? The default on CDS as to whether it's malpractice to follow it or it'd be malpractice not to follow it and so on. Well, at the moment, the law, I think, still, that goes to what is the standard of care. Um, but the law still puts the responsibility on the doctor and treats it as a malpractice issue, right? We haven't gotten to the point where we think it's a product, a pure products liability issue, which would be the next step in the legal evolution here. So I think it's just applying the old rules to a new problem. I'll disagree a little bit there. Um, I think the the questions of potential, like in, in medical malpractice in general, issues of demonstrating causation, actually knowing that a harm occurred because of something that the physician did uh, are already extremely challenging when we bring in fairly opaque, complex AI into the mix. I think those are going to get more challenging. Now, there's a question as to whether this is just a question of degree or really different in kind, but I'm not quite so sure uh, that it's just a question of applying the old rules to the new technology. To go back to Nick's earlier question, um, I'm not optimistic that we're going to really think about the regulation in a particularly systematic way, at least in terms of kind of implementing things uh, before bad things happen. I'm not quite so sure that we're going to think about it in a particularly systematic way even after bad things happen. Um, I, I look at this area and think, oh, you know, FDA is doing interesting things about digital health innovation. And I think they're thinking proactively about AI and medicine. But really, the AI that they're looking at is a relatively small subset of the kind of AI that's getting involved in medicine. Just to take a simple example, pretty much all the in-house systems that hospitals are already developing and using to direct care pathways, to consider which patients should get which resources, to analyze billing issues, um, all sorts of things that are in-house. FDA doesn't touch those at all, and I'm not sure anybody is. Well, time is pressing as always, so can we finish up by just uh, going around the room for uh, any closing thoughts, statements, or concerns as we uh, as we contemplate uh, what should be a fascinating uh, world ahead of us? I, I think this is a tremendously exciting area. I think AI has the potential to really transform the medical system and to be hugely beneficial. Uh, I think there are lots of challenges and a couple of them that strike me as really cutting across different substantive areas are first making sure that the AI that we develop really applies and can be beneficial to large sets of patients and isn't uh, really siloed into places where we already have lots and lots of health technology. The second issue is, I think, about data. Uh, 
and the developing of AI. And I think there's a, a view that the old system of health research in particular is a really different special circumstance that stands apart from almost everything else we do, uh, is increasingly untenable and an unrealistic representation of the health world that we live in. I'm not sure what the right vision is, but I think it's tough to say that health research is completely different from everything else we do in the world and in the health world. This is a really exciting time. I mean, this is the ground floor, and we, we have no idea how high the elevator is going to go, but it could be very high. Um, when we say AI in the conversation we just had today, we're really talking about machine learning, which is one very specific technology. And one thing to keep in mind is there are the potential for other kinds of AI coming down the road. And we want to be careful not to optimize our rules for machine learning when there may be other kinds of AI. AI 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, because rules change very slowly once they get set in place. Um, more generally, AI, as, as Nicholson said, depends very heavily on data. So I think the way a lot of this plays out is going to depend a lot on how we regulate data more generally for privacy, for antitrust, and for a lot of other things. And while the medicine and public health are tremendously important, I at least am nervous about trying to optimize all these things for medicine, because it does seem to me there are many other social values at stake. The more we go for sort of complete openness and transparency, Transparency, the more we make it possible for all kinds of data to be collected by the government and others who want to use it in ways that we may not find very friendly. Think Chinese social scoring for a very bad example coming soon to a government near you. Um, and last, if I can just finish with the commercial, um, this has been a great conversation. And we have conversations like this all the time at We Robot, which is going to be in Miami right here where I am, um, April 11th to 13th next year. And I would welcome anybody listening to this who wants to continue the conversation. I think one question to think about is, who the proper regulatory body is going to be. We haven't talked much about FDA in this conversation, um, but in other parts of the roundtable that we had at Yale, we did have some panels discussing where FDA is on some of these other questions, for instance, with the health apps um, and things like Fitbit. And FDA does seem to be uh, a little timid in this context and perhaps not keeping up or regulating um, with the robustness that uh, might be ideal. And the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that since we're dealing with the practice of medicine, Medicine, there's maybe a very important role here for the states in intervening and regulating how doctors should be using AI and uh, dealing and evolving medical malpractice standards. So I think those questions about where the proper regulatory body is going to lie um, are, are pretty interesting and still unresolved. And that was the week in health law. Big thank you to Professors Gluck, Price, and Frumkin. Michael, I know you're on Twitter at mfrumkin. Abby, you're cleverly at Yale AG. And, of course, W. Nicholson Price uh, for uh, Nicholson, also on Twitter. That was so much fun having you all on the pod. Thank you for joining me. Show notes are at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.